Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter, I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the Australian National University. And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU, and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Um, and Anna Greta, I am back in Canberra and with my big mic this week, so I'm hoping that my sound quality is just a bit better than it has been over the past couple of weeks. It is fantastic, and I'm so looking forward to listening to your adventures across Australia in the, in the weeks and the months ahead, Sharon. It's great to have you back in the ACT. So, listeners, welcome to Policy Forum Pod. We are a podcast that's based at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. We're produced by Policy Forum. At the Crawford School, we offer a wide range of wonderful courses that look at to tackle the big issues of our time, the sorts of topics that we often address on this podcast. And we take a practical research-based solutions approach to tackling the big challenges of our future. So if you're passionate about creating and implementing good public policy, you can find out more about our courses at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Of course, last week we spoke with Alice Garner and Parsi Salberg about education, particularly about secondary education in the Australian context. And I think the two of them took us through a wonderful series of discussions there about both the challenges and the real opportunities for change as that sector evolves. And of course, on today's discussion, we're going to continue into the tertiary sector. I wonder, Sharon, if you'd like to introduce the topics for today's discussion. I would love to to introduce this week's conversation and and like you Anna Greta I really enjoyed that conversation last week and the comments that were made about more play in education and seeing children as part of the leadership that makes decisions, I was just delighted by. I thought that was such important and powerful messages. I think we're going to have equally important and powerful messages today. We are talking, as you said, about about higher education or tertiary education, and universities are in many ways worlds of their own, but they're also intrinsically and deeply connected to the world around them. Universities are a part of all that we do, and they're very much part of public policy. They shape the kinds of conversations that we have every week, Anna Greta, and they're essential to contributing to a better and a fairer world. This podcast is an example of the ways in which our university seeks to engage with issues that matter to people's lives 
every day and to engage with with a wide range of people across our society. Academics generally love what they do and they're fueled by passion, making universities very special places. It also makes those who teach and research vulnerable to exploitation in a system that can be brutal. Anonymous reviews of what we write and of our applications for, for funding for research can be soul-destroying and confidence-destroying, particularly for early career researchers. Increasing casualization has made careers in universities very difficult pathways, and yet many of us could not imagine a different way of life. The past few years have brought extreme challenges for higher education, for both academics, for professional staff, and for students. The onset of the COVID-19 pandemic saw teachers and students rapidly transitioning to online learning. Closed borders meant international students were not able to come to Australia to commence their studies. And seeing colleagues lose their jobs and early career researchers losing their hope of an academic career was devastating. But I must say, from, from my own perspective, what was most devastating during 2020 and 2021 was the clear disdain that the then coalition government showed towards the university sector and the failure to understand how important it is to our nation's social, intellectual and economic wealth. With this in mind, what role do universities play in our contemporary global world? How can we learn from mistakes of the past and how can we create a more sustainable and equitable higher education system to benefit staff, students and our community? To help us unpack some of this, we have two extraordinary leaders from the higher education sector joining us today um, and two incredible leaders from our own university, or at least soon to be both at our own university, Professor Helen Sullivan and Professor Janine O'Flynn. Um, as we are now doing on the pod, I'm going to ask each of you, Helen and Janine, to introduce yourselves. It's it's fantastic to have you with us today. Welcome. And Helen, perhaps you could begin by introducing yourself. Uh, yep. Very happy to, Sharon. And uh, thanks to you and Anna Greta for inviting me back onto uh, the pod. It's always good to uh, to do this, and it's going to be great to do this one with uh, with Janine. Uh, my name's Helen Sullivan. I'm a professor of public policy and dean of the College of Asia and the Pacific here at the ANU. And one of my lifelong uh, passions, I suppose, in academia is trying to strengthen the relationship between research and practice, and education in all its forms is a really important part of that for me. Helen, it's it's a real privilege to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Um, and Janine, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, thanks very much. I'm currently a professor of public management at the University of Melbourne and on a fairly long succumbent to the Australian New Zealand School of Government, but very delighted to say that from January 2023, I will be the director of the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU, which is a return to the ANU for me. And I'm really delighted to have this chance to talk about what's happening in, in higher education and, and how we can work towards making that a much more inclusive space. Um, in terms of myself, I'm, I suppose my catchphrase would be I'm a writer, educator and advisor on all things public management and I've spent probably the best part of, well, should I say, a couple of decades now, I think, uh, working particularly with experienced professionals who are grappling with a lot of these challenges um, on a day-to-day -day basis in their professional practice and and I really love getting the opportunity to work 
uh, with them and, and to learn from them and, and certainly have a, a very passionate commitment to improving their professional practice so that we can confront so many of those complex challenges that we're dealing with now. Janine, I, I must say on behalf of, of me, but on behalf of all our colleagues across Crawford, we are so excited that you are coming back as director of the school um, and we are really looking forward to January when you start with us. So that's that's uh, um, something that, that I think across the school everyone is is absolutely delighted and excited about. Janine, I wanted to begin with you with what is perhaps the most basic question of all, but a question that I think is really important to set the scene. Why is it that universities matter? And we could be mistaken, having seen some of the the discourse in Australia over the past few years, to think, well, perhaps universities don't matter at all. But but from you, why do universities matter so much? Oh, Sharon, it's such an important question, and I think it's one that those of us who inhabit the space of higher education and, and particularly universities grapple with ourselves a lot. And, and if you've ever tried to explain that to people who haven't participated in higher education, it's one of the most challenging things to do, actually. Um, I've always thought universities uh, are here to grapple with some of our most complex societal questions and to provide a space where that can happen. Um, buffeted, uh, buffered, I think, a little bit from the outside, but very connected to, to reality. Um, I think they're about creating ideas. They're about thinking about some of our biggest challenges in new and different ways, and they're a place where we should be challenging, where we should be challenging the status quo, and we should be asking questions about what sort of future we want to have and, and to me, that's what the place of a university is. Within that, we do lots of different activities and people are interested in engaging in the university for many different reasons. But, but certainly my own sort of journey into higher education was an interesting one and um, I, I see it as a place where we can learn, where we can come together with very different perspectives and, and really confront some of those big challenges of our times. Helen, I, I think, as I said to Janine, it's such a simple question, but it, it's such a fundamental question. I, I wonder if you wanted to add anything to that really comprehensive um, answer that Janine gave. Um, I think, I mean, I obviously agree with everything Janine says. I, you could probably, you know, pro- use that as a preface to everything I'm going to say this evening. Um, the only thing I would add is I think that one of the things that universities can do is they can bring together people from all different walks of life, um, whether that's, you know, regional Australia um, or whether it is in um, Canberra or Melbourne, uh, where there are large international student contingents. And we, in the process of education, um, in the process of student learning, Students encounter each other as as human beings, as political actors, and social creatures. And uh, so the the learning that they do is not just about the subject that they're taking, but it's also about who they are in the world and how they work in the world. Um, and universities are a huge opportunity um, that, uh, without which, I think uh, we would all be much much poorer. 
Helen, you and Janine have mapped some of the really important reasons why higher education matters and the role that universities play in our society more broadly. I'd love to hear your reflections on how the higher education system in Australia has changed in recent years. What sort of challenges and changes have we seen in that landscape? I think the higher education system in Australia, as with higher education systems all over the world, uh, you know, suffer from the um, the the endless um, fascination of politicians. You know, universities are a uh, they're a pretty low risk. Um, high return uh, activity for for politicians to um, engage with, and um, because by and large um, the public, while many of them want their children to go to university, many of them have been educated at university. You know, by and large, when we think about the things we care about, higher education is not top of the list, and politicians on all sides can make use of higher education are now perceived. Uh, weaknesses um, in order to further their political ends. And while that's, you know, just part of doing business, I think one of the dangerous and damaging things, which is what we've seen over the last decade, certainly in Australia, is that it it, it forces a pretty major policy reforms through that are not necessarily well thought out or not necessarily based on evidence um, but are about responding to a particular interest group or a particular ideological perspective, and um, and certainly, you know, most recently um, in Australia, the Jobs Ready Graduate Program, which was really designed to try and uh, push students in a particular direction uh, in higher education in the choices that they were making. You know, we've got lots of evidence that it doesn't really matter what governments do. Students will think for themselves and they will choose the pathways they want to choose. But um, governments' attempts to uh, manipulate that have have meant that, um, you know, degrees now cost uh, very different amounts depending on what they are. Um, universities are uh, rewarded um, uh, very inequitably, depending on what they're they're good at and and how many students they take in in different courses. And um, overall, the the funding basis of of universities in Australia is pretty insecure. Um, you know, and the obvious uh, manifestation of that, of course, is the reliance on international students, which developed as a result of um, university reforms which wanted to make Australian universities more competitive um, and has now come back to be used against universities as a uh, a, a means of universities enriching themselves um, and becoming overly reliant on uh, particular groups of students, especially those from China. So, you know, the higher education environment is bound up in all sorts of uh, broader political uh, discourses at, at one level, um, but another level, uh, it's pretty simple. Um, and it, I think that what we're left with at the moment in the higher education system in Australia is a system that really doesn't work um, for anybody terribly well. And the um, the focus in so many universities now on trying to find external sources of funding through philanthropy, advancement, call it what you like, um, has meant that, uh, you know, universities, some of them spend a lot of their time and their money uh, trying to 
generate additional revenue um, as opposed to doing the things that perhaps we think universities should be doing, which is researching and teaching. So you're beginning to touch on some of the challenges I think we're facing, uh, obviously, in the higher education system. And within that system, there are obviously a a large number of complex parts and a large cohort, of course, in the higher education system is the students. You've already touched a little bit on how the student cohort has changed, but I'd love your reflection on on the makeup of our students now compared to perhaps a decade ago and the factors that have contributed to the change in the student cohort across the Australian higher education landscape. I mean, for me, just reflecting on what Helen said is, is um, you know, there's this whole series of contradictions in, in higher education. And if we think about how that the cohorts of students have changed. There's this very interesting mix, I think, between you know, universities becoming much more open. And certainly in my lifetime, having been educated fully in the Australian higher education system, um, they have broken open in many ways. And so who, who even gets into the universities now across Australia is fundamentally different to who it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So the, the profile... Of students has changed, which in my mind is a is a wonderful thing um, to to see that. And you've also had this sort of marketization of and commodification of education in Australia higher education in a way that um, goes to some of the points that Helen talked about. Certainly, the cohorts really um, very different, and it's changing. And certainly, my experience, which has been exclusively in postgraduate education, so I can't comment so much on on the dynamics of undergraduate education is that there's been a real um, diversity of the student cohort, which in an area that, that I work in, in public policy and public management, is perhaps the most extraordinary asset to have in a university um, for all of the reasons that Helen talked about in terms of you know, building social networks and connecting students together to, to learn from each other but also the capacity it gives us to really think about those issues in different ways. Certainly in in my field, which is, you know, sort of public administration management has been Western dominated for a very long time. Um, The idea, the real foundations of that have been so exclusively Western um, and excluded great um, swathes of the world. And so sort of confronting all of that complexity in a, in a room with students from all over the world to me is is an extraordinary thing. So the cohorts have changed um, quite a lot over time and in my mind sort of the diversification of that of that cohort to much broader sets of countries over the last decade has been a great thing. Yeah, that's a really important factor in this. Helen, I wonder if you had any further thoughts on on the student cohort that we're seeing in higher education today. I think only that of course the the student cohort that we see at the ANU and that you see in Sydney and in Melbourne um, and you know the other big uh, G8 universities is a particular kind of student cohort and there remains a huge amount of work to do to improve the diversity of, of that student cohort at the at the undergraduate level um, in the way that, that Janine was talking about. I mean certainly it's better and and more open now than it was. But you don't have to look too hard at the profile of, of any of the uh, the big universities. And by that, I mean the ones in the, the G8 in Australia. Um, you know, you don't have to look too hard to see that actually the student profile 
is you know it's 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 pretty wealthy it's pretty white it's um uh you know a result of of people who've had um great starts in life um yes there are exceptions but um the cohort is not as diverse as as we would certainly want it to be at the ANU and that's um absolutely a priority for us I agree, Helen, and it's, I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting in, in higher education, as I said, I've, I've been teaching and sort of operating exclusively in postgraduate education, which is totally different than um, undergraduate education, is that some of the experiments with changes in higher education have made that worse over time. So, um, you know, attempts to remodel universities, for example, at the University of Melbourne, where I've spent the last decade or so, in the undergraduate space have led to a further um, narrowing of students who come into that university, which has had a long history of, of being relatively elite as well. So I, I agree with Helen that, you know, who gets in the door matters and who has the opportunity to do that is really important and that a big job for, for institutions like the ANU and the other group of eight that Helen mentioned is to, to really think about different pathways into the university um, for a much broader range of students because some of those reforms have have made um, have made that worse, particularly at undergraduate level. I think this is such a, a critically important issue, and for each of us, um, you know, Helen, Janine, and and Anna Greta and I as well, we're all deeply engaged in issues around public policy, and of course, the students that come into the university are the decision makers of the future. And so, when we don't have diversity, that really matters um, for the future of our country, for the future of our region. Um, and, and more broadly, because we have so many international students, but but also often um, also from a, a reasonably privileged or a fairly privileged background. Janine, you started to talk a little bit about, you know, expanding the kinds of pathways through which people can enter university. But I'd, I'd love you to talk just a little bit more about how you think uh, we can increase and improve equity and ensure that we do have greater diversity in our student body, um, but perhaps also in, in terms of staff as well, in terms of, of, of lecturers, tutors and so on. Yeah, I mean, it's really important issue that the sort of, if we talk about exclusively the students being, you know, greater diversity in the students, then we also have to tackle our own house in a, in a sense. And, and certainly one of the things that has been raised with me a lot as a um, as an academic in, in universities in Australia is the students want to see themselves represented in the faculty and in the people who work in the university. Um, and so they don't want to be sitting sitting in a room with people from all over the world and just see an exclusively white staff teaching in and or an exclusively male staff teaching. And, and certainly, um, you know, that was said to me quite a lot as I was sort of coming up through through the ranks for for um, many people, they said it was great to see, you know, like a young woman who was was teaching because they didn't see them very often, for example. And and I come in um, to that with with sort of extraordinary privilege. I mean, I wonder if I could tell a quick um, story that captures some of these challenges. And I won't talk about the specific student, but um, some years ago, I was contacted by a student who was very keen to to come and do a program at, at the university. She didn't have an undergraduate degree. She was a, a very experienced professional, but the university where um, I was working at at the time and <laughs> still working at this stage um, had very strict rules about that. 
Um, she she recently contacted me, sent me a note, sent me a card actually, um, to tell me that she'd just done her graduation from her master's program, and all she needed was someone to give her a shot. And what what she needed was for someone to navigate the complex university structures, um, both cultural and and regulatory structures, to open up that space a bit. And basically, all all it required us to do was to allow something like an entry into a a, um, a, a program that allows people to come and basically audit a subject. They don't do the assessment, but they come and audit the subject and then they can choose to do the assessment. And that starts to get you on a path of um, of taking a subject and then you sort of stack on top of that another one, another one through community access um, into the university. But it took extraordinary effort within the university to get the the sort of wheels to move in a different way and to navigate all of those um, rules and regulations, all of all of which on on the sort of um, you know on the sort of face value are really important rules and regulations. And perhaps this is my bias in working in sort of public policy and administration. You're thinking about all of these complexities that that stop people from getting to where they need to be, and. To me, that was a really great illustration of how you could open up different paths to people who go on to do extraordinary things, a woman who'd already done extraordinary things in her professional life who wanted to come to the university and um, and expand the way she thought about those issues and return to her profession um, with those credentials and with a different worldview. And to me, it's a great story of how you can do that. And how you do it en masse is totally different. Um, and perhaps we can we can think of some great strategies. I know we rack our brains about that all the time. On faculty, I think it's a it's a totally different equation um, and a set of strategies are needed because here you're talking about really breaking down very embedded power structures. You know, is thinking about how do you bring that expertise into the universities in lots of different ways, and part of it is just overcoming simple issues around um, biases that people have. In terms of who who is credentialed, um, who is who is um, has merit to be in those positions, and that requires us to be much more self reflective, and also to think about why we have the sort of faculty profiles that we do. We simply can't have faculty profiles in these universities that ignore large parts of our community, and. Um, and for me, we need to work very hard at addressing those issues of um, enhancing diversity, but also also being respectful of lots of different types of expertise um, and in building cultures that are not just inclusive, but uh, also reckoning with some of those um, big tensions that we have around racism and sexism and so on. We can't just bring people into these spaces together and not tackle any of those challenges if we want to have thriving faculties that can really work with a very um, diverse student population. Helen, what are your thoughts on on these really challenging but critically important issues um, around equity and diversity of both students and, um, and faculty members and staff broadly across the university? You know, one area um, that we all know um, and should have known a long time ago and still not doing it anything like enough about is how we ensure if adequate representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as students and staff in our universities. 
and um, we are I think there is more recognition of that now but you know we're still pretty woeful at um, at, at at, at recruiting and retaining and uh, both both students and staff. So um, that for me is an area that uh, we absolutely have to uh, get better at. And um, we're certainly um, putting a lot of effort into it um, at the ANU. And I know that there are other universities that are um, have done more and um, um, are doing well. Um, you know, one of the things that has proved um, effective, uh, certainly at the, the ANU, is the Pat Turner Scholars Program, which is um, a program that is funded uh, through the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation, which is a foundation that's also a partnership between the Australian Public Service and the ANU. Um, and the, the Pat Turner Scholars Program um, takes Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander public servants who are at a particular point in their career and gives them the opportunity to, um, you know, develop uh, their their career in in whatever area that that, that they would like. And um, that has it's only been going for a few years, but it is proving to be um, very successful. It is something that we do uh, in collaboration with Charles Darwin University, and so. Uh, the you know the the priority here is both that 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 students have a sense of cultural safety, but also that they um, have access to uh, the relevant expertise at, at at both institutions. So, but these things are not cheap to do, um, and which is not absolutely not a reason for not doing them. But um, it does in a in a time when budgets are constrained, which they are. Um, then it is incumbent upon us and, and you know certainly people like me who are who are deans to to really think about well how are we using the budget that we have um, and how might we use some of that budget differently in order to um, address some of the priorities that we know need to be addressed um, you know one of the things that the ANU has had the great privilege of experiencing for most of its existence is an abundance of resources and that is no longer the case um, and it is but we're still a very wealthy university um, so we're, we're having to think uh, harder and differently about how we use those resources the other thing I think that I would say that that, that we've not really talked about and I, I certainly don't, don't want us to get bogged down in this but um, you know one of the there's no shortage of good ideas for how you might increase the diversity of a cohort. And I think actually, you know, recognizing what Janine said about, you know, some of the, the, the cultural silos and the power dynamics that exist in, in universities, um, it's actually probably easier um, with faculty if you've got strong and determined leaders who know uh, what good looks like and also know how to, um, how to navigate some of the politics. I think what's harder is in terms of, of students and uh, developing programs that appeal to students, it is incredibly difficult now in a university to change anything at any speed. You know, whether it is an assessment task or uh, a learning outcome from a program or the reading list, um, you know, if one is thinking about 
you know, how do we decolonize some of our, our reading lists? You know, these are all good and important things, but you're talking about a lead in time of a year at least to make some of these happen, things happen because of the, you know, the, the amount of regulation that, that we have either created for ourselves or has been created for us uh, by the government as it tries to, um, well, I don't know what it's trying to do, but um, it, it does mean that that sometimes good ideas fall by the wayside just because people become so tired of trying to make something happen that should be easy, but has become difficult because you need to do X and then you need to do Y and you need to hit this committee and that committee and the whole thing, even if it happens really, really smoothly, is going to take you 18 months. So there's something else here about if we're talking about higher education for the future and how we as as higher education institutions say to people who might not otherwise, you know, think about coming to university um, you know come and study with us because actually we can we can help you change your your worldview and we can help you change your future um, if what they see is these are institutions that are hard to get into you know labyrinthine in terms of how you try to navigate them and have all of these rules and regulations about what you can and can't do and how long it takes to do x or y um, then you know, why would you do it? Um, both as a student, but also as a as a faculty member. Um, if you could go and work somewhere in a think tank or a consultancy where, um, you know, you can make change much more quickly. I mean, I'm certainly not recommending that and I would never want to lose people. But um, I think sometimes we do make it very hard for ourselves to to make the kind of changes we want to make because of our systems and processes. Oh, Helen, um, no one can see us because this is a podcast, but I am nodding furiously as you say that. And I think all of us who work within the university sector have experienced that incredible frustration of perhaps wanting to make a change to a course um, or the assessment in a course because something is happening in the world now that we want to reflect and that process taking months and months. And I think added to that, there is the sheer load of bureaucracy and paperwork that we're all dealing with rather than being able to get on with the teaching and the research that we want to do. So I think they are such critical issues for us to be raising and challenging. There is much more for us to talk about in, in this conversation, and I am so enjoying this discussion. We are going to take a short break now, and we will be back to talk more in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Professor Helen Sullivan and Professor Janine O'Flynn. We're talking about higher education, the remarkable role it plays in our society. And we've talked so far about the students that are at its centre and we've touched on the challenges that need attention, I think, for the future of our sector. I'd like to talk a little bit now about staffing and employment in higher education. I think everybody who works in the university sector or who knows friends or family members who've tried to have employment there are aware of the remarkable struggles that have emerged in the last few years, particularly through the coronavirus pandemic. And I'd like to really talk about that casualization of the university workforce. What does casualization mean for teaching and research and why is it an issue? Or is it an issue? Janine, would you like to start? Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to, and let me preface this with a couple of couple of things. Um, I, I spent my, like anyone who's done a PhD in the Australian University system, I spent many years as a casual um, working alongside of that in some sort of apprenticeship-based model. That's how I always used to describe my university experience. But it seems to me that that model is broken, and whether it was a good one ever is is up sort of for debate, I think. The the levels of casualisation higher education in Australia at, at the moment are, in my view, a scandal and coupled with the very big, um, you know, front page stories we've seen about institutionalised wage theft and um, issues around um, sort of employment conditions for staff in universities is is terrible for many reasons. One is that it's for many people it's a soul destroying um, sort of issue that that has emerged in in there. But it also is undercutting our future capabilities as great institutions. I mean, Australia punches above its weight in any any measuring, and I, I don't want to talk about university rankings, but in any measure of the impact that comes from Australian universities. Um, but what are we doing to our next next generations of, of scholars? And so the combination through through COVID of austerity measures really amplified that. It wasn't the start of that. It really amplified what has been going on in universities for some time. And if I just go back to some points I made earlier about sort of the, the opening up of universities, which has been a great a great sort of thing to happen in higher education in Australia, much more to come as we've talked about. But the marketisation and commodification of how we think about education has also fueled this mass sort of casualisation of universities um, and alongside of that these issues around wage theft and so on. Um, and I'd, I'd also like to say that many of those issues around wage theft are not new. They have been embedded in embedded in university operating for, for some time. It's just taken very brave groups of people to come and, and speak out about that, as some of our colleagues have. Um, I wrote a piece last year about the future of my field, public management and, and administration and what the impact of COVID had been on that, and I talked specifically about the impact on our next generations of scholars and how, in a sense, we're destroying the system around them. Um, now, that, that all sounds very terrible, and, and it is for a lot of people who want to have careers in higher education. And so I, I hope later we'll talk about some of the optimistic um, sort of visions of, of the future that we talk about universities. But I think we're, the, the way that funding works, the way that grant schemes are working, the, the pressures that are operating in universities in Australia at the moment are really creating this, this terrible sort of dynamic 
um, for people who are who are trying to break into that industry, and um, it's heartbreaking to see to see that. We've seen the release recently of of grant schemes long overdue, which has destroyed people's careers. Um, so yeah, so casualization is is a real issue. It it also goes to the student experience in my mind. Um, you know, it's great to be able to bring experts in and teach courses and and tutor in universities, but we can't have entire degrees that are being um, taught by people who aren't connected into the university, who don't feel that they're citizens of the university and don't feel that they're part of those institutions. And and that can make it very difficult for students as well to try and navigate universities when when the staff that they're dealing with haven't even feel aren't even feeling that they're connected to those institutions. So I think there's a lot of work for us to do on on building those um, communities in universities amongst our faculty um, and amongst our professional staff who also are suffering from um, a greater casualization as well. And and that combination is making, I think, very high-stressed sort of environments in, in universities. Helen, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, I, I guess uh, asking about whether casualization is an issue. But perhaps more than that, what sort of models of employment would you like to see universities developing in order to combat some of these employment challenges that have emerged, particularly in the last few years? Yeah, I, th- I think um, that the you know there are there are models, and um, you know certainly the the model that, that Janine described of you know this idea of being a PhD student and and, and doing a, an apprenticeship, I I don't think is necessarily a bad model, provided a couple of things exist. You know, one is that you get paid decently as a PhD student, which is something that you know at the ANU we we've just. Uh, lifted our PhD stipends for, for domestic students to an almost uh, living wage. So, you know, there is, there's, there's, I think there's merit in that, but of course, that's not a, that's not necessarily uh, uh, the only route, nor should it be the only route. The thing that concerns me is that I have colleagues now who will actively discourage people from commencing PhDs because they say there is no future in academia. And so, um, and while there's certainly a conversation going on that, you know, I don't think is necessarily a bad conversation um, about, you know, a PhD is not just a route to becoming an academic, you know, it can be a route to all sorts of things. Absolutely. Uh, it's, that's always been the case and it should be the case. But fundamentally, if if we as institutions are not able um to convince our own faculty that they should take on extremely high qualified candidates for PhDs because there are no jobs, then I think, you know, we are in serious trouble. Um, So I think we need to think more about uh, what other models exist. Um, I don't think that necessarily um, as somebody who also, you know, had a period of being on short-term contracts, fixed-term contracts, when I moved from being a public servant to uh, being an academic, you know, there's that, there was a period for me where I was, um, you know, piecing piecing my life together. I think at the time we called it a portfolio career. It was very grand. Um, but it was essentially, <laughs> you know, you make ends meet by working for this place and that place and, you know, whatever. Um, but I suppose I always, foolishly or otherwise, had a sense that, it would end that that there would be a pathway for me, and I think what's different now 
is that people are on these fixed-term, short-term contracts for years and years and years and years. And one of the things that I've been really confronted by is the way in which some of our institutions um, concede that this is a problem and concede that people should um, have the right to um, a, you know, a more continuing position um, and then somehow of the hundreds and hundreds of people who've been doing all of this work for such a long time, um, you discover that only two or three of them are entitled or fit the criteria. So I think there's something very wrong there. Um, and I certainly am of the view that if we have people, professional staff or, or academics, who have been making a really valuable contribution over a period of short-term contracts, such that it is clear that the contribution that they're making is important and ongoing, um, then we should do the right thing by those people and make them continuing. Um, so there are some simple things that that perhaps we don't do as well as we should. Um, but I think there's also a question of, of thinking about uh, potentially more um, hybrid um, roles that maybe go across industry and academia, um, so that we're we're not necessarily seeing um, being an academic as only one thing. Um, that we actually create the conditions in which it is possible uh, to move around. I have a PhD student who is doing a extraordinary PhD, which is based on looking at people who don't, you know, who have multiple. Um, careers and don't necessarily see themselves as, as as fitting in one place or another. You know, they'll have a university role and an industry role, and um, maybe be an entrepreneur as well. And there's a, you know, while there, there's a finite number of those people, again, I think as Janine was saying, you know, there are there are opportunities to think about what people can bring to universities and the way in which they might move in and out of universities. That um, hitherto we probably haven't thought about because we've had this idea that, you know, to be an academic, you need to look like this and you need to follow this kind of uh, career trajectory. Helen, an, an important part of of all of this and, and of that incredibly powerful kind of story that you've mapped is the way in which funding operates. Um, in recent years, we've seen a decrease in, in government funding. We've seen increases in, in some student fees, in some disciplines. Um, and as we've already flagged, we've seen increasing expectation that academics will find funding for their research um, in the private sector, often through philanthropic foundations, but, but also through other types of partnerships. Um, and I think that often contributes to the casualization. I know I have a number of fantastic colleagues that I employ through my research grants, um, but there is always pressure then to be chasing the next grant, to, to be chasing the next lot of funding, because their employment and their future rests on that ability of, of mine to be able to attract more funding or not. And so the stakes feel very, very high. I would really love to hear your reflections on funding models generally. It's a very big question. It impacts on students. It impacts um, on the issues of equity and student equity that we've talked about. And it impacts on these issues of casualization. Do you have thoughts, Helen, on 
how we can begin thinking differently about funding to universities. I have thoughts. I'm not entirely sure any of them are are palatable to anybody who's making any decisions about university funding at the moment. Um, You know, it doesn't really matter how passionate you are and how um, articulate you are about what it, the investment and the effort and the sweat and the commitment that it takes to become an academic expert in your field. Um, You can tell those stories as much and as often as you like to decision makers um, and they will smile and nod and say, yeah, um, but then, you know, we need to prioritize. And, you know, government is about choosing, um, which is always a good thing to say to a public policy expert. But um, so and and I, I get that. I understand that there are finite resources, but I also believe that we we are we spend so much money regulating higher education um i mean the um uh the research assessment exercise is a case in point you know costs 50 billion dollars apparently to just run that exercise um now we're not running that at the moment because we feel that somehow we've reached a point where we think Um, there's not that much to be gained from it. Well, that's fantastic. Hallelujah. But something else will appear in its place. And, you know, that is just one example. Um, You know, you've got TEXA, registration. And and I'm not suggesting necessarily that these things are unimportant. But what I'm saying is that the amount of resource that goes into regulating and disciplining universities um, is, I think, something that could be uh, reconsidered. Um, I also think that there's a, we've, the, and I'm not a, a funding expert, so I'm not going to delve into this, but, you know, it is quite clear that the, the job ready graduates package that was introduced is not going to be an easy thing to disentangle, even if um, the government was minded to. Um, and so, you know, we seem to have set in place processes and practices of funding that are just embedding inequity, that are um, distorting um, preferences um, and or trying to to, um, influence preferences. And also, we are not necessarily doing what Janine was talking about earlier on, which is really thinking about, well, what's the purpose of universities and how do we fund that effectively? you know, what is, if the job of a university is to generate a surplus so that the council that governs the university feels comfortable that, um, you know, they're running a successful institution, that feels a bit off to me. Um, the, the role of a university is surely to generate new knowledge and to um, educate future generations. Um and we need to build funding models around that. You know, at the moment, we all know that research uh, costs universities to do it. Um, so it doesn't matter how successful you are at ARC grants or anything else. Uh, there are very few uh, research grants that actually cover the cost of doing the research. So um, we're already in difficulty there. We need to really think about uh, what we mean when we talk about uh, the cost of research and how we choose to to fund that, and philanthropists, and again, I don't blame them. You know, will very often say, 
well, we love your idea and um, we really want to fund that, but we're not funding the core organizational cost or what we call the overhead, um, which is, you know, pretty significant in a university. So, um, you know, always round the the funding model that, that we have just pushes us to um, constantly search for money, um, but doesn't enable us to uh, be sustainable as an institution. You know, in our institution, the ANU, the only thing, the only thing that makes a significant amount of, of money for the institution is international students and it's international postgraduate students. So um, that needs to, to change. And, you know, people who are much more immersed in funding models than I am um, are wrestling with this. Um, but I think that we've reached a point where the system is just not working um, and we we cannot continue as we are. I think for me, Helen, one of the things that also surprises me is that the these sort of funding systems and performance and regulatory regimes are established and then policymakers become shocked that the behaviours of institutions changes to adapt to them. Um, and, and talking about the ERA is a really interesting example of that because you had it, you know, abandoned or the journal rankings abandoned at various points in time because, um, you know, politicians said we can't believe that universities were using those to assess their faculty um, performance. You know, like, well, what else did you think was going to happen when you set up a ranking scheme that said that that some journals were better than others and um, you, you sort of handed the university a sort of ready-made way to, to rank its its uh, academic staff. And, and we see that, I think, in a lot of these different regimes that are intersecting in universities. They're very messy, complex environments around funding and performance and it goes to some of the questions that um so some of the points that helen made before about you know politicians it's it's easy to have a bit of a kick of of universities and and to establish just another um set of sort of hoops for them to jump through so the the funding model i agree with helen it's broken it provides no sustainability it it it's one of the key drivers of that um sort of issues around sustainability and so on for for careers for people but also it constrains what we can actually do and what sort of value can be created by institutions you know we the funding models pit us against each other in a in a way that should not be happening in a in a small country with a thriving higher education system we should be collaborating much more but the the way that our funding operates it's better for us to compete um, in the short run, in a financial sense, than it is to collaborate in across institutions in ways that could really drive some big um, breakthroughs. And and part of this is really going back, I think, to some questions around the commodification of education, how we think about it, but also things like um, the the cost to participate in those programs. And Helen mentioned the cost of participating in things like. ARC grants and, and what it costs for the ERA to have been done. I mean, these are hugely expensive exercises. Hardly anyone gets funding out of them in terms of the percentage of successful applicants. And and certainly other institutions in other parts of the world are, are starting to experiment with 
things like random allocation of money for those that meet quality um, quality thresholds for their research, and they're just going to randomly allocate them to people um, within that set. So I think there's different ways we can think about that. And when we set up people and say you have to apply for ARC funding, it's part of your performance review to do that year after year after year when we know that perhaps, you know, 10 or 12 or 15% might be lucky enough to get them, we're setting up people to fail um, as well. And that's something that we have to deal with a lot a lot better in, in universities as well, that, that notion that people might fail several times before they ever get to something that they think of as of success. But we've, we're creating this sort of dynamic in institutions where the funding models are are making us behave in ways that are, are probably to our detriment and, and certainly perhaps to the detriment of, of more large-scale collaboration across institutions. What, what an amazing conversation to start about the role of competition in the higher education sector. And I'm well aware that speaking with the two of you, Janine and Helen, tonight, that I feel like we're touching the tip of a, a large iceberg in terms of the challenges of higher education. Over the last few months on this podcast, we've been discussing quite a broad range of complex policy problems from climate change through to higher education. And like with our conversation today, what, we've, what we're hearing from policymakers across the board is that there, the challenges are real and that the, the challenges, particularly from ne- neglecting various systems, have been significant over the last decade. What we're also hearing is a sense of optimism and an opportunity for real and structural change. I would love to hear from the two of you as we wrap up today's conversation. What you see as the future of higher education? What should our university learning and teaching look like in the decades ahead, which potentially are more challenging? This is, I mean, this is such a, it's such a great, uh, such a great question. And I'm going to tip my hat a little bit to to Helen here and some of the the musings, and I and I say that in the most respectful way that she has had over the last few years about utopian thinking and really imagining different futures. And I'm I'm sure she'll speak about that. And if she doesn't, she has to now that I've mentioned it. But um, I mean, to me, thinking about what if we go to teaching and learning, which is the question that that you asked for me, we really have to think about that in very new ways. Um, the challenges that we confront are enormous. They um, are disrespectful of ways that we've organised ourselves into discrete disciplines um, and, and we need to get better institutionally in how we can work across those to really confront some of those challenges. Um, and, and Helen and I have had a, a little bit of discussion about this at various points in time, I don't think formally, but this, you know, do we focus on big questions? Helen's spoken about that before. You know, do we focus on um, sort of problems? And I've become more of a sort of let's think about what the big problems are and how we organise them, um, not to the detriment of asking big questions, but but do do they give us a way to to sort of think in different ways as institutions and and sort of fuel some of this collaborative activity across institutions and, and disciplines in different ways, but also to think about how we um, design our curriculum, how we engage with with those students that are going to come and spend some time with us. As I said, I've worked exclusively in, in sort of postgraduate education for certainly the best part of 15 years or so. And what has struck me about um, students that end up in a classroom with me is their absolute passion 
for thinking about things in different ways, for confronting these um, complex challenges, whether it's educating young girls, um, you know, whether it's thinking about climate, whether it's how do we solve environmental catastrophe, you know, how do we redesign um, government so that it deals with some of these um, embedded sort of social inequities. I mean, this is what is driving people who end up in policy schools, which is where I've sort of spent um, my time. And it, and it strikes me that we have to think about curriculum in very different ways and, and teaching and learning in different ways. And we have to be able to combine this notion of sort of technical skills and expertise with creativity, um, with being having a sort of risk appetite and also for humility and empathy. And these are really difficult things to build into um curriculums and we we tend to think about them as sort of subject by subject building blocks and and so I'm I'm sort of excited and optimistic about how we might reimagine um, curriculum and education in in the future I don't have all the answers but but certainly for me some of the big themes of, of sort of reimagining that are about you know how do we grapple with complexity like it's here um we have to we have to think about that in very different ways. Like, what? How do we think about systems that shape um, how we operate? How do we embed sort of humility into the way that we um, craft education and also have it as sort of a value that people take out um, into the world once they've been with us at the university? And and also empathy. How do we sort of embed empathy into into our um, institutions but also how do we educate for for empathy and and humility for me is really sort of some of the big things that I've been dealing um with in my own thinking about education um and the other is really how do we broaden out our ideas about what is expertise and what is knowledge and who gets to say what that is um Helen mentioned sort of the decolonizing um work that's happening in many parts of the world um which is a which is a very positive positive thing in terms of teaching and, and learning and education. Um, but the other thing I think that's really important is that we that we recognise and and respect that many of the ways that we're thinking about as new ways of thinking are actually very old ways of thinking um, with deep roots in lots of different cultures. And and I think that's a really important part of sort of the next revolution and evolution in in education is really. Um, coming to grips with seeing the world in much different ways, and and certainly that's my ambition and um, and agenda in education as we move forward. Oh, that's so exciting to hear, Janine. Fantastic, Helen. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I think it's hard. It's going to be hard to uh, to top that. So um, I think I just say a couple of things. Um, uh, I mean, certainly on on the utopian thinking, <laughs> given that Janine's uh, mentioned it, I, I think one of the things for me, and, and certainly when I um, teach uh, one of the courses that that I teach, which is 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 about leadership, it's it's really putting people in a position of imagining otherwise, and it is remarkable how really, 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 really smart people um, are still confined very often you know it takes a while to get out of this idea that um well there are there are certain things that are are fixed and given and you know one of the uh, the opportunities of utopian thinking is that it really does open you up to well 
what if things were otherwise? And surely that is the purpose of education at, at university. You know, what if things could be otherwise? How might they be? Um, so I, I think creating the space for people to imagine otherwise is really, really important. And, you know, what, what does that mean, you know, in, in practice a bit more prosaically? I suppose I'd say a couple of things. I mean, one is that I, I think um, in addition to the, the multi and interdisciplinarity that, that, that Janine was talking about, there's also a need to really think about what are the roles that we're expecting people to play? Um, you know, and, and and are there new roles that we need, new, you know, we might call them hybrid roles or paraprofessional roles or whatever we like, you know, the the roles which are they're non-academic roles, but they're not traditional professional administration roles either. But they're, you know, it's part of a, what does the new system need to look like? And what are the skills that we need in that system to enable us to create the learning environment, the learning experience that, that we want our students to have? Um, and I'm not quite sure that um, we have all those, well, I know that we haven't got all of those pieces in, in place yet. And in, again, it requires us to imagine otherwise that, the, the, you know, this is not just about academics and professional staff, both very, very important, but what's the, what's the missing piece? Because there is a, a missing piece. And I think the third thing that I would say is that one of the, you know, if we if we don't understand what it means to be accountable and what it means to have integrity and and that's something that we don't learn and appreciate at university through how we access knowledge how we respect knowledge what knowledge we we consider um, how we engage with each other how we debate you know the, these are all things that demand all the things Janine's talked about but they also demand a certain approach to us as human beings with integrity, but also um, who people who are prepared to be held accountable and also to hold others to account. And that, to me, goes to the role of universities as, as, as preparing uh, people for the world. Um, and it's a world that, you know, lacks a great deal of integrity and accountability at the moment. Um, now, university is not the only place for this to happen, and it's not um, sufficient in and of itself. But if, as part of what we do, we can instill in people that really it does matter that if you call something a fact, that it has certain characteristics, and that it does matter that um, following a, a line of, of argument and developing a complete thought in a coherent way um, and attaching that to a set of ideas that you can defend, but also to argue respectfully. These are things that are, you know, basic, but are really, really important and are things that in the world of Twitter and social media and, you know, everything being immediate, um, we seem to have forgotten. So I just want to add that to the, the list of things that Janine's already mentioned. Janine and Helen, I have to say I could have the two of you back on for at least another hour just simply listening to the two of you imagine the future, particularly in higher education. Uh, it's been so wonderful having the two of you with us today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Sharon, what an extraordinarily inspiring conversation with Helen and Janine the, this afternoon. It's been wonderful to hear their thoughts on both the challenges of higher education as well as the opportunities for future change. 
I'm struck by those themes of commoditization of education and the challenge that that's brought and the way in which that's undermined, I think, a lot of integrity in the system, particularly around employment and a loss of humanity, which I know both of us saw playing out in real life amongst our friends and colleagues uh, through the university sector, particularly in the last few years. These human elements are so important to all of the work we do, and that's been a theme across all of the conversations we've had this year, celebrating diversity and recognising the real value of diversity, difference, and opportunities for doing things in a different way, the opportunity for change. Again, Helen and Janine have highlighted the challenge of complexity and the opportunities that we set, we have by changing how we think outside our siloed system. Um, but but the, the university system grapples with that as a challenge in the same way that we've heard from so many of our other contributors this year, that that opportunity to shift towards integrative thinking or systems thinking or complex integrated thought uh, is a real challenge for the university sector, but it's one which I can see us embracing in the very near future. And finally, these human elements of imagination, creativity and play, they're coming up again, of using humility and empathy in the, all of the work we do across the tertiary education sector. What an inspiration for our future. What were your thoughts? Uh, look, I, I agree with with all that you've said there, Anna Greta. It's a very powerful reflection on that conversation we just had. Um, I think both Helen and Janine are such important thinkers, um, in not just in terms of how we think about higher education, but much more broadly. Um, and I love the way that conversation began with the challenges we face and what's wrong and ended up with utopian thinking and imagining how things could be different and how, how wonderful that could look. No, what what I take away from that, um, like you, Anna Greta, I think is my concern about that loss of humanity. You know, when we're thinking about the negatives that we've seen over the past few years, the past decade, you know, those issues of casualization that we we talked about and the overregulation, I think, are really worrying because this is eroding the futures of the very people that we want to bring into the higher education sector. It's amazing young early career researchers that are often most impacted by casualization. And it breaks my heart when I see them leaving the sector. You know, we need to bring those people in. We need to support them. We need to look after them. And of course, research is a public good. You know, it's through research, not just applied research that has clear and immediate impact, but also through blue sky thinking that we bring about social change and that we progress fairer and more just and more sustainable societies. So all of that really matters. The conversation about equity I thought was just so important and and that's part of thinking differently. And like you, Anna Greta, you know, that idea of imaginative learning I think is so important, what some people call the pedagogy of wonder, you know, how we can explore complexity in new ways. And I couldn't help thinking as I heard Helen and Janine talking, how that links to some of the points that Passy Salberg and Alice Garner were making when they talked about secondary education um, and how we can rethink the way we should teach people, how we can rethink the way people learn so that imagination and wonder and joy are at the centre of, of, of thinking and learning. What an exciting future that would be. Absolutely, Sharon. Absolutely. Science, imagination, joy, creativity, empathy, humility. That's our human future. 
It absolutely is. And, and let's just slip in our hashtag, Anna Greta. Let's, let's also value caring. We should value care. Absolutely. Listeners, we will leave a link to some of the publications that we've mentioned. Um, They will be there in our show notes. We always love to hear from you, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or you can send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net or join us on Facebook. Just pop Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you'll find us. With spring upon us, we will be taking a short spring break next week, but we will be back with you on Friday the 28th of October, taking you right through the policy challenges and opportunities facing us for the rest of 2022 and, of course, beyond. Next week, the week commencing the 16th of October, is Anti-Poverty Week. That is such an important time for us to reflect on how many people are living in poverty in Australia, which is such a very wealthy country, and to reflect on what action is urgently needed. As part of that week, I'll be involved in an ABC Big Ideas panel with Natalie Lewis and Kath Bartolo, which is going to be facilitated by Paul Barclay. That is going to be released on ABC Radio on Thursday the 20th of October. So while Policy Forum Pod's taking a break, our listeners might want to have a listen to that. But for now, for this week, until the 28th of October, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, I'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye.